Well, good afternoon. It's really nice to see you all. I think uh, maybe summer is here. Maybe for a couple of days. It feels really warm in here, doesn't it? So hopefully um, you won't get too sleepy and uh, nod off. More importantly, hopefully I don't get too sleepy and nod off. It's, it's okay for you. You can nod off and maybe no one would notice, but the preacher can't go to sleep. Um, we've reached the very end of Ephesians. We've set ourselves quite a tall order today to finish off. Um, I want to try and do some summarising as well as thinking about this very famous passage about the armour of God. Um, In some ways, um, the end of Ephesians sounds like a news bulletin. When you get to the end of the news and the person on the screen says, and finally, in other news... um, Maybe that uh, resonates for you. Or perhaps it might be more appropriate to think of these last words as like the last words of a sporting coach before you play in a big event. Um, I was reading this week, it's Wimbledon soon, isn't it? And uh, I was reading this week about the only time a black player won the Wimbledon tennis tournament or black, black man. Uh, in 1975, a man called Arthur Ashe was the 32-year-old fading uh, guy coming to the end of his career and he was up against the cocky 22-year-old Jimmy Connors. Brash, the unanimous favourite, but nobody really liked him because he was so brash. And Arthur Ashe and his team decided that they would never beat Connors with raw power. That's what Arthur Ashe was famous for in his career. So they had to try something completely different and more subtle. And one of the coaches in Arthur Ashe's team realised that Connors had been beaten by a 43-year-old who played this kind of really gentle, kind of feathery tennis and, and Connors had been completely befuddled by this and had lost. So they spent a couple of days planning their tactics. And as Arthur Ashe walked onto the Wimbledon centre court, one of his team passed him a handwritten note. Keep the ball low. Keep it on his forehand. Serve him wide on the backhand. And use the lob. I don't know what he did with that while he was drinking his Robinson's juice. But uh, the coach, right at the last minute, passes him a note with the tactics. I think if Paul was a coach, these words in front of us here would be his closing pep talk. This is his kind of handwritten note as we step out into the metaphorical centre court he's already said a lot and now he draws everything to a conclusion and look at this turn finally finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power many uh, people over the years have tried to suggest a kind of dominant theme for the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. Some people have 
have said it's all about love. Some people have said it's all about the church. I, I think it would be uh, fair. Uh, a fair contender would be one of the dominant themes in this letter is the theme of power. Um, in chapter 1, if you can remember that far back, Paul prays, doesn't he? We were just talking, singing, open the eyes of my heart. Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened in part so that they would know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. In chapter 3, he prays again that out of his glorious riches God may strengthen them with power in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. This is a power that took Jesus from a stone-cold tomb to the very throne room of the whole cosmos. This is an explosive power that makes sinners who are dead alive in Christ. This is a power that enables Jews and Gentiles who previously hated each other's guts to sit next to each other in church and enjoy sweet fellowship because of their unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a power that enables those who are weak to overcome temptation and to live lives that are pure and self-controlled. I think it's a fair contender to say that this letter is about power. There's perhaps two ways to think about power. I've drawn a little cartoon, it's a bit Mickey Mouse this, but um, Mickey Mouse was a cartoon, wasn't it? Um, There's two ways to think about power. We, we, We can think about power outside of us, And we can also think about power inside of us. Power outside of us. Here's a good question. When this letter was written 2,000 years ago, do you think the world was a more frightening place then for these people, or is it a more frightening place now? What do you think? It's a good question, isn't it? If you lived in the Roman Empire fairly brutal maybe life was cheap lots of superstition was that a frightening time to live the first century when Paul went to Ephesus and pagan people came to faith in Jesus on one occasion they brought all their books on sorcery and witchcraft into the town square and burned a lot of them. It says in the book of Acts that the total value of the books they burned was 50,000 drachma. I tried to work out what that would mean in today's money. I think it's about three or four million pounds worth of books. Pagan people come to faith in Christ. Previously, they'd been frightened of powers outside of them that they didn't understand and didn't know how to control. And when they came to faith in Christ, all those fears were relieved. And all of their previous superstition disappeared. 
Whatever those forces were outside of them, they now knew that Christ was king over all of them. Maybe today our Western culture prides itself on being less superstitious than the first century. But we're not free, are we, from threat or from fear. It seems like there are still powers at work outside of us that are beyond our power to control. So there are powers outside of us that we fear. But what about the other way of looking at power? Here's another question for you, and that you don't have to answer this publicly, but this is a good question for all of us. Are you able to be the person that you know you should be? That's a different kind of power, isn't it? We live in a world where we have more technology than we've ever had before. Perhaps better education, at least here in the West, than we've ever had before. And yet we still, we still often seem powerless to control our own desires, don't we? So not only are there powers outside of us that we can fear, but often we seem to lack power in ourselves to be the people that we ought to be and so Paul concludes here having talked about power all the way through this letter and says finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power God is both bigger than the powers you fear and he is able to handle you and give you the power that you need What I want to try and do today is summarise some of what we've been learning over the last few weeks and then we'll close with some thoughts from chapter 6. And Here's the question that I wanted to ask uh, this afternoon and I think this is very much on Paul's mind. How do you see yourself? That's, That's one of the most important questions you can ask really, isn't it? Um, how, how do you see yourself? What, what is your own perception of you? Um, I think one of the things Paul does really well in this letter is he, he, he uses such vivid language. Um, he, he, he's creating constantly images that would connect with the people he's writing to. And often he's thinking in terms of contrast. One uh, what, I mean, we could ask, what does Paul think of himself? Just look with me at verse 20. Um, Paul describes himself in a very unusual way in chapter 6 and verse 20. He calls himself an ambassador in chains. What's an ambassador? It's not a rhetorical question. Someone from, another Someone from another country. What do ambassadors do? They represent their country in another country. What is that likely to involve? Are they going to stay in one place? Does an ambassador stay in one place? Travel? Is that, is that fair? An ambassador is someone who is out there meeting people, representing their country. Here Paul describes himself as an ambassador 
in chains. What kind of an ambassador? He's shackled. He can't travel. How can he represent anyone when he can't travel or do the things that he wants to do? It's almost, one writer said it's almost like a massive ocean liner stuck in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It's like a massive roaring lion in a tiny soundproof cage. To be an ambassador in change. Here is Paul almost expressing his own heart like the eagle wants to fly. But it, it, it can't. Isn't it amazing that Paul wrote this letter from prison? He, his circumstances restrict him. His circumstances confine him. But his heart is soaring over all his circumstances. An ambassador in change. What a contrast to make. The eagle wants to fly. That, that would be a great title for the book of Ephesians. That's Paul's life experience. So how do you see yourself? Is the power of God at work in your own personal life? I want to say four things. And the last one will lead us into talking about the armour of God. And they're all contrasts which seem contradictory. First of all, someone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is broken yet fixed. That's an odd contradiction, isn't it? Remember where Paul began? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In chapter 2 he says, you were dead. You were spiritually dead in your sins, following your desires, by nature, objects of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ. In other words, Paul is writing to these Ephesian Christians and saying, you're not working towards being fixed. In Christ, you have been fixed. You are saved. You're adopted into the family of God. You're forgiven. In chapter 2, the language he uses is that you've been seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. It's not possible to be half a Christian. But notice that Paul doesn't say that we've fixed ourselves. This is the great thing about the gospel, isn't it? That these two things are true. We're broken and yet fixed. We have nothing to boast about because we ourselves were lost, guilty. But we have everything to boast about because he has lavished his kindness on us, sinful, selfish people, because of his grace. Paul says in chapter 2, it is by grace you have been Saved. There's no room for selfish, smug 
self-righteous superiority. But neither is there any room for hesitating or for despair and inferiority either. It isn't humble to hesitate when God calls you to follow him. We're broken and yet fixed. You could, well, here, here's a challenge maybe for some of us as well. You, you can't be fixed until you acknowledge that you're broken. Jesus came into our world to rescue and save failures, not to congratulate the successful. He came to save us from our sins and our fears and our anxieties. If you don't think you need him, you'll never come to him. But to those who do come, he gives it all, even his very self. I love that verse in John's Gospel, chapter 6, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Can I ask you, do you get up in the morning and say, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I will be a Christian one day when I have dot, dot, dot. If this is your thinking, you're still relying on something that you may or may not do in order to qualify as a Christian and not on the Lord Jesus who has done everything already for you. There was a town jailer in Philippi who once asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Broken, yet fixed. How do you see yourself? We're all broken. And yet those who trust in Jesus are saved forgiven, fixed. So, live in grace. Here's another contrast. Um, Ephesians speaks very much about the fact that Christian believers are individuals and yet they belong. This is something that our culture is very confused about. What's more important, the individual or the group? In the West, we would say individual choice trumps everything. In Eastern countries, the rights of an individual would be subordinated to the well-being of the group. Who's right? What's more important, the individual or the group? The amazing thing about the Christian Gospel is that it treats every single person as a unique and precious individual and yet at the same time unites and provides for the deepest intimacy of communion. The gospel doesn't make us clones of one another so that we're all the same or obliterate difference but neither does it leave us isolated and lonely and fending for ourselves. 
Uh, chapter 5 and verse 21 is a key verse. We've, we've spent three weeks actually teasing out the implications of that. Chapter 5 and verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The gospel unites people in him. It doesn't obliterate difference, but it gives us a basis for unity. Unity without sameness and diversity without separation. These are things that our culture craves. The idea of family is, uh, is very prevalent in the Bible. I was talking to uh, our Rob about this this week. He's been um, thinking about this. I, I think they've done a sermon series at his, in his church in York about family. It's profoundly... Um, stayed him we were chatting about it this week remember that God himself is not singular well when we think about God God is not singular in the sense of being lonely Um, this is one of the big differences between a biblical view of a Trinitarian God and other monotheistic religions that see God as an individual. God is one and yet he exists in three distinct beings. Father, Son and Spirit. God in himself has never been alone. If you like, God is the original family. He is one and yet plural. Unity and diversity. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is an incredible thing, isn't it? Because in the gospel what God is doing is extending and increasing his family and inviting other people to come and participate in the love that exists within him. God is love. Father, Son and Spirit. And God says, come and be part of my loving family. The Gospel is God's invitation to us to join in his eternal and loving family. The very end of Ephesians is significant when Paul gives the benediction at the very end in verse 23 he says peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ this is a love that comes from God and overflows to us so how do you see yourself broken yet fixed an individual and yet belonging. You are a precious individual and yet you belong to a community. So live in love. That is exactly Paul's thinking in chapter 5 and the first couple of verses there. Look with me at um, Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes, Be imitators of God, therefore. In other words, this is what he is like. Your job is to be like him. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's another contrast um, I I might sound like I'm contradicting myself here I think Paul strange language here 
to, to express the full truth of the gospel there is a sense in which the gospel makes us complete and yet not finished and I think the New Testament really throbs with this all the way through doesn't it there's a sense of now and not yet We, we are saved one day we will be saved both things are true at the same time Uh, Back in chapter 1, Paul says something very striking, verse um, 13. He says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, you are God's possession now but, you, but the full consummation of that is still to come in the future. Complete, yet not finished. You have it all but you haven't come into the full possession of it yet. Uh, I was chatting with Jai during the week this week and we were were encouraging one another and um, sometimes when things seem hard and difficult one of the things that we can always say to one another as Christian people is we know the end of the story don't we? (laughs) whatever happens today we know what the end of the story looks like it's not uncertain Paul says here that the spirit in our hearts is a deposit, a down payment guaranteeing the end of the story. What God has begun in you he will finish. And the tremendous thing about Christianity, the gospel is that it brings into our lives both a present possession and a future hope at the same time. Complete, yet not finished. So, live in hope. And fourthly, and this this will lead us into just thinking about the armour of God. The idea is another contrast. The idea of being secure and yet in a fight. How does that work? How, How can you be secure and yet in a fight? at the same time Paul says a lot of amazing things in this letter and then he gets to the end and he and he says you're in a fight put on the full armour of God it's possibly a shock to the system does, does it seem out of place to you one, one writer said Ephesians is full of such exalted thoughts substance for dreamy reflection and then slap the ugly blood and grime of war. Oh, that made you all jump, didn't it? <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't do that. There's a, there's a, there's a great contrast. All, of, all Everything up to chapter 6, verse 9 is like positive, hopeful. And then Paul says, and finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You're going to fight, guys. You're going to fight. This is a struggle and it's grim and it will be difficult. And you need to stand and not fall over. How do you see yourself secure yet in a fight? The way to stand is to see yourself as a soldier in a fight and so live with or in purpose. And so we come to this famous passage where Paul speaks of putting on the armour of God. If you've ever read um, anything of Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, Bilbo Baggins passed on to his successor, Frodo, Mr. Frodo. He passed on to his successor a finely wrought coat of delicately woven mail, which was secretly made under the mountains by dwarves and was virtually impenetrable. I think it was called Mithril, was it? Some of you are Lord of the Rings aficionados. And this, this armour, very light but very strong, it saves the hobbit's skin on a number of occasions. And here Paul offers us real armour, not made under the mountains by dwarves, but wrought in heaven, on the anvil of heaven which will protect us if we'll wear it. Here's, Paul's writing from prison, maybe being changed to a Roman soldier inspired him to use this imagery, I don't know. I think the point, the overall point, I think, of this chapter is all of this armour comes down to this. If we are going to stand, the way to stand is to put on the gospel. The way to stand in this fight is to believe the gospel and to put it on. And Paul here is concluding like a good coach, as we said, and basically saying to his fellow Christians here, live in the light of the gospel. Be in your daily life who you now are. Put the gospel on and live it. And then you'll stand. This is about applying God's word to our lives. Martin Luther, you'll have heard of, German theologian. And in much of his um, writing, he talks about... um, feeling the the attack of of a kind of spiritual depression and and one of his biographers said this, the content of his depressions was always the same it ultimately came down to the loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me Every, every time he was feeling 
under attack. That's what it came down to. Is God really good? And is he good to me personally? Luther had many struggles and in the end it came down to this. Uh, the, the, the constant fight for faith to believe that God is good to me. Well, Paul lists some um, armour here, so let, let's uh, quickly skip through them. And, um, and then we'll be done. Truth. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. I want to try and give these some descriptions that are relevant to our lives. Here, here, here is the first thing about the armour. It comes down to having an anchor. One of the amazing things about our modern culture is the way that categories of truth have changed. Our modern culture is effectively uh, teaching us that the only absolute truth is the truth that there is no truth. The, The irony of that is profound isn't it Um, how how can that be true as a statement if there is no absolute truth it's a self defeating worldview. but the end of that whole idea when there is no absolute truth uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Judges in, in the autumn and one of the phrases that recurs in the book of Judges is this one In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the nation was in chaos. Everyone just did whatever they felt was right for them. The only thing that was true was what was true for me. There's no overarching story or overarching truth. Paul says that truth undergirds everything. In this armour, the truth is the belt that holds everything else together. One writer says the primary thing about the Christian message is that it is true. If it isn't true, it is meaningless. And it isn't true because it works. It works, if it does, because it's true. Never give up on the sheer truth of the gospel. It is the belt which holds everything else together and in place. Do you have an anchor in your life? God's truth is is that anchor. Secondly, I want to talk about this idea, dealing with shame. The next thing that Paul says, he talks about putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Um, We could could spend a long time on this. I I want to focus here on the idea of vindication. You know that word, vindication. When we went through the armour of God, uh, I forget now, was it a couple of years ago? Two or three years ago. And we talked a lot about righteousness 
And the way we describe righteousness, I was just looking back at this during the week, righteousness is a kind of relational quality control, if I can say it like that. How can I look other people in the eye and not feel ashamed? And ultimately, who is able to look God in the eye Uh, let's turn that around and say can we bear for God to look us in the eye and not feel ashamed in the Garden of Eden it says that Adam and Eve knew no shame and as soon as they sinned the first thing they did was they ran for cover they hid from one another it says in the Bible that they sewed fig leaves together to cover up their shame. Why? Because they couldn't look one another in the eye anymore. God comes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? And he's hiding in the trees because he can't look God in the eye for the shame that he felt. One of the interesting things about human life is, is the constant sense that we have of wanting to make ourselves presentable so that other people will like us. And it's true in religion as well. All forms of religious righteousness involve us working hard to make ourselves acceptable, except Christianity. The fact that the one true God is the one true judge and intends to put the whole world to right is a scary thought for us until we begin to realise that God vindicated Jesus his son who comes into the world and the father says this is my son who I love He died. And because his death was acceptable as a sacrifice to his father, he was raised to life, vindicated. The court of this world said, we don't want this man to reign over us. The court of this world rejected him, but the court of heaven vindicated him. And when the Bible says that you and I are in Christ, where does our vindication come from? Where does our acceptability come from? Where does our righteousness come from? It doesn't come from our performance. It comes from the righteousness of Jesus. His vindication is our vindication. Because of Jesus, it it is almost as if God treats us as if we were him. God is able to treat us as if we're clothed and covered in the righteousness of his son. So that we can look God in the eye with no shame. The breastplate of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, 
in a sense, makes you and I bulletproof. To put on this breastplate of righteousness is to throw away all the fig leaves that we use to try and cover ourselves up and make ourselves look presentable. The gospel deals with our guilt and shame. Sometimes our guilt and shame causes us to work too hard because we're trying to live up to something. Sometimes our guilt and shame makes us feel unworthy and disappointed. Sometimes our guilt and shame makes us shy and self-conscious. The righteousness of Christ is our vindication, our cover. And because of that, we can look God in the eye with no shame. Dealing with shame. Having an anchor, dealing with shame. Here's another one, facing reality. The next part is a very interesting verse. Paul talks about having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Lots of commentators think lots of different things about this. Some commentators think this is about sharing the gospel with other people. I think that's probably in there. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I I, I think part of what this verse is alluding to is that of being prepared to face whatever life throws at us because we are found in Jesus. One writer says this because of Jesus we can march over the rough terrain of life over the mountain passes of excruciating pain through the deserts of fear and terror without falling out prepared to face the reality of life because our feet are fitted with the gospel of peace. Isn't it true that when bad things happen in our lives our instinctive reaction is to wonder what did we do? What did we do to offend God and cause him to treat us in such a way? If our feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, what we need when suffering comes is not to fear him, but to know that we are his and we can trust him. The readiness to face the reality of life. I think there's something here as well about being prepared to fight for peace. The gospel that unites people together. Being quick, being ready to be peacemakers. I've shared with you before, one, one of the things that has shaped our culture at work 
is is, is the relationship that, that I've, I've had with my, my good friend Paul. I, I remember Paul and I working together. We, we don't do it so much now because we both work as ministers of churches. But when we work together every day in our office, we good friends, we realise very quickly that we are very different. And sometimes we had violent disagreements about all kinds of issues we thought each other were kind of on a different planet at times there's a problem here how are we going to fit well we're going to do this obviously what are you stupid and we and we would literally go into the boardroom and close the door and we would spend an afternoon just ripping each other's values and opinions to to shreds But we always worked on the basis that this was not a competition between us. We were on the same side fighting it. Our understanding of it might be different. But invariably we realised as we drove off the car park thinking that each of the other one was mad we'd come back the next day with both of us having changed a little bit. And the decisions we made were all the better for it. And the issue was that our underlying commitment always was to fight for peace. Neither of us had a monopoly on being right. We respected one another. And even though we disagreed violently, we were willing to think the best of the other's motives even when we disagreed. Your feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Fight for peace. Here's another one. Hey, we need to be quicker. Escaping slavery. I couldn't think of a better phrase for this one. Let me uh, have a look. What's this next part saying? In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So the image here is of a soldier with his big shield and the enemy would fire arrows sometimes that they dipped in tar and set on fire. You put up your wooden shield and you're going to be on fire before too long. So the shield would be coated with stuff that was inflammable so that you could, you know, and the shield, you know, would protect you from the fiery arrows of the enemy. Why why do I say escaping slavery? Uh, We haven't got long to spend on this, but here's the deal. Everything about the lies of our enemy is designed to capture us. Right in the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, what does the devil do? The the serpent comes into the garden and says, did God really say that? He didn't really mean it. He promised them freedom and lied about what that would mean and it meant death and misery and tragedy every time that Jesus mints no words when he spoke about the devil he is the father of lies he does not have your best interests at heart every time he opens his mouth slander falls out of it that was Martin Luther's issue How, is God really good? 
the little voice in the back of his mind saying, oh, maybe God's a monster and he's a tyrant, he doesn't really love me. Lies, a lot of them. Every time we fall for the lie, we, we basically climb into prison. What is the answer? Paul says, take up the shield of faith. In other words, do not allow yourself to believe the lie. Trust the promises of God. And in so doing, escape the slavery that comes with the devil's lies. These arrows may take the form of doubt or despair of adverse circumstances, of sharp temptation that will burn you up if you let it catch light, of personal tragedy, or indeed the kind of triumph that tempts you to arrogance and pride. Being secure, Paul, next of all, talks about headwear, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of Salvation. This is about security. To know that you belong to Him. The helmet of salvation. This is about security. To know that you've been rescued from the ultimate enemy and enables you to face all the secondary enemies. Wear the helmet of salvation. Security. And there's three things then that Paul alludes to as we close. Three things. There's some of the armour. And I'm trying to connect this to the kind of things that we experience in our lives. Paul then says three things in closing. First of all, he talks about taking up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. One writer says this, It may be a word of comfort for one's emotional turmoil. It may be a word of hope for one's quivering soul. It may be a word of courage for trembling knees, a word of challenge to one's apathy, a word of condemnation for one's sin, a word of prophetic judgment for one's uninvolvement and insensitivity. It may also be the word which the Christian is to speak, a witness to be made, a judgment to be shouted, a prophecy to be uttered, some teaching to be shared. The underlying foundation for everything that Paul says here is the word of God applied in the power of the spirit of God. I I don't think I've ever met any Christian who has been strong in their faith who has not been spending time in the word of God. And that has been my own experience. When I'm weak, it's because that has drifted. When my faith burns low, it's because the word of God is not precious to me at that point. Take up the sword of the Spirit. 
which is the word of God. Secondly, uh, Paul says, that's really dark, isn't it? Sharing your life with God in prayer. Another great theme in this letter is the theme of access. Just go back with me to uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. Um, Paul says there to his friends, in, in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That, that's the great thing about the gospel, isn't it? To be able to come to God any time, any place, to share your life with God in prayer. I wonder whether there's a word of challenge for us in that this afternoon. At the end of this letter here, Paul says in verse 18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of praise and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray, pray, pray. Do you pray? Are you praying? In the word, sharing your life with God in prayer. And lastly, Paul speaks of sharing our lives with one another in love I just wanted to touch as we close with these final greetings here all the letters of Paul end with these little lovely human touches don't they I don't know how you say this guy's name is he Tychicus Tychicus I don't know Tychicus the dear brother and faithful servant's Lord will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. What, what's on Paul's heart here is the desire for Christian brothers and sisters to be sharing their lives with one another. And then he closes, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. I love the way Paul finishes on a note of hope and we'll finish here too. Those who love Jesus love him with a love that will never die. We say in life, don't we, all good things come to an end. Except this. This is just the beginning. To love Christ now is to love him forever. Our prayer has been that we would be captivated by the gospel and that we would be motivated to live for Christ. Let's um, pause, shall we? And we'll close with a prayer.